Hi, I'm Claire Riley and welcome to MS Understood. I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis in April 2017. At the time, all I wanted to do was get on with my life, put my head in the sand and privately listen to real people's stories about living with this unpredictable disease. I was deep in denial, terrified about the unknown ahead and I felt really alone. So there it is. MS Understood, conversations with real people from all walks of life who live with MS. Before we get started, I'd like to acknowledge that this episode of MS Understood was recorded across multiple lands. I recognise and acknowledge that all of Australia is Aboriginal land and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. I remember pleading with my psychologist about two weeks after Craig had died and absolutely melting down and saying to her, I just don't want this to change me. And she was like, well, what are you so scared about? And I said, well, because I quite liked who I was before. I was positive and mm. upbeat and, um, and, you know, she didn't have much to sort of comment on that. But as time has gone on, I'm like, of course I've changed. Of course, like how can these big experiences not change us in some kind of way. Today on MS Understood, we are chatting with Joe Betts, who is giving grief a voice. I first heard Joe's story about losing a husband suddenly on another podcast, and I knew I had to talk to her for the MS Understood podcast about grief. We talk about the five stages of grief and how it's great for initial framework, but it doesn't list all of the emotions that we go through. We talk about the bullshit self-care, and how on those dark, deep days of grief, it's really important to look after our simple, basic needs, like getting enough food and water. While Joe's experience of grief is around death and ours is around an incurable illness, there are so many similarities between how we process these incredible emotions. I hope you get something out of this chat, just as I did. Hi, Joe. Thank you so much for joining us on the MS Understood podcast today. How are you? I'm well, thanks, Claire, and thank you so much um, for having me. I'm actually really excited to talk with you today. Oh, no, I'm so glad. I feel like we need to start with who you are and introduction before we get too far into, like, how we, how I found you and that sort of thing. So could you give us a bit of an introduction? Yeah, of course. So sometimes with this question, I'm always a bit like, where on earth do I start? I guess um, with my life, it's a little bit of... Um, you know, that there was the the old Joe that I'll talk about that, um, you know, I've grown up in Geelong and, you know, probably 10 years ago started off working as a marriage celebrant, so heavily involved in weddings. And I'm also the co-founder of a wedding digital publication called Ivory Tribe, which has had quite a lot of um, success and we'd released a wedding planning book. So life was going uh, pretty well until 2017 uh, in the September, so just over four years ago, uh, my husband suddenly died of an asthma attack in the middle of the night. And I guess I found myself in this whole new world of grief and trauma. And um, since coming out of that experience, I guess I've become a really big advocate for giving grief a voice in our community because I think through my own sort of lived experiences I've realized you know how it's such a taboo topic and in a time where we need connection most often it's really lacking and 
And I guess I've learned, yeah, a lot about grief along the way. You know, of course, there's grief about the death of a loved one, but I've soon sort of realised that there's, you know, a lot of grief about many things, whether that's diagnosis of an illness, whether that's the breakdown of a relationship, of separation, or, you know, I think even it's become a lot more apparent over the last couple of years with COVID as we kind of grieve our old lives. So, look, it's an interesting life because I'm st- I still work in weddings, but I'm also looking at the death and grief side of things. But, you know, I, I like the complexity that it kind of brings too. Mm. And, and I think that's, so I heard your story um, on another podcast, um, at The Choice with Amy Bad, and I'll pop a um, link to that in the show notes. And I thought it was so given that I'm reaching or or branching out a little bit and speaking with people who don't have multiple sclerosis, I really think that grief is something that, like you said, it's kind of taboo. We don't speak about it. Um, And you obviously like grief of, of someone dying is I feel like almost in a weird way, more acceptable than grief of I'm still here and I'm still fine, but my body doesn't work the way it wants to. And so I thought it would be really valuable to be able to speak about grief and how it works and what it is and whatever. On yeah, abs- and I absolutely agree with that. I think, you know, you could say that, yes, I've lost my partner, grandparent, sibling, whatever it might be. And you're probably right. It does feel a little bit more accepted than saying to someone, you know, I've got a diagnosis or my marriage has broken down and people are like, but you'll be right. Like you're still well, here. Well, I think the tricky thing with a marriage breaking down is it's your choice. Yes, that's versus, true. Versus like you obviously didn't choose for your husband to die and mm. I obviously didn't choose for to get MS. So I think that creates taboo around more, you know. Well, and people are really awkward talking about these tough kind of topics. And I think at the same time, you're going through an array of emotions that you hardly understand, let alone having other people try and understand and empathise with that situation also. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you about the frameworks of grief. So when I was first diagnosed and and long before when I was um, studying a a psychology subject many, many years ago, we talked about the framework of grief, that, you know, that linear, you go through these five stages of grief. It doesn't fucking work like that. (sighs) It absolutely doesn't. And I think that that was the big shock for me as well, because I I still actually remember not long after Craig, my husband had died and look, I, in my normal day-to-day life, I'm a bit of a problem solver. So I was like, well, I've got a problem. It's the death of my husband and grief and I need to solve it. So I was straight onto Google with my sister one night saying to her, can you please read out to me? What are these stages of grief? And, you know, you look at them and it's like denial, anger, bargaining. I think it's depression and acceptance. And I just was like to her, oh, that's good. I'm glad I know that. Um, I'll tick those off the list and then I'll be done with it. So (laughs) I think I spent, you know, I really monitored what I was going through at that time. And I think the funny one for me was I hadn't quite hit a place of anger. I thought I'd hit, you know, various days, like thought I'd been angry at things. And, um, you know, but anytime I felt a bit of anger, I'd be like, yep, tick that one off the list. Anger is done. So I must be moving on to depression next (laughs) and then it'll be acceptance. And um, I thought I'd done a pretty good job of my grief in that first year. And then maybe I think 18 months into my grieving process, I just hit an absolute grief-like hole and I've never been more angry in my life. And, but I was, but I was confused because I was thinking, 
haven't I already I've done, done? I've mm. done this. I've, I thought I was at a place of acceptance and feeling at peace. And I think that was the big wake up call for me was just because I've done depression or anger um, doesn't mean that I won't go back there again. And I still am fascinated by how some stages I can feel like, you know, right, right now, I actually feel like I'm at a point of perhaps acceptance this week. Mm. But if you had have spoken to me maybe six weeks ago, I was right back at denial and anger again. And that, like you said, it's been four years. Totally. And, and I think it's really hard to explain to people because, because not only do I think is there that misconception that it's linear, but that also with time, and I think normally with the death of someone, and I'm not sure how you find this with the diagnosis of mm. MS, is that you, you get one year, like you get mm. people are really accepting of you grieving for one year and beyond that, you're just a bit of a pain and you're a bit of a doubter. <laughs> so, I, yeah, and I, I'd be curious for, for people to let me know on Instagram and I'll pop up a thing one day when this episode comes out. But, yeah, I don't know because, like you said, a death doesn't end. Like they're not coming back. Mm. And I think in that way it is similar to the diagnosis is that I have moments of like, so I've been diagnosed almost the same time, the April mm. 2017, and it's not going away. Like I'm not curing MS. No one's going to cure my MS and no one's going to make it better. And it's very unlikely that my symptoms are going to get any better. And so I still feel days where I'm in grief, but yeah, I don't know. And I I think there's maybe a little bit more acceptance in the long-term grief, but I'd be curious about what other people think about that. Yeah, I'd be curious to hear it too. And I wonder whether, you know, as time goes on for you, Claire, whether that grief experience will become harder and more challenging or whether mm. it eases in time. I presume for me it will get easier with time and it certainly feels a lot more manageable than it did in the first couple of years. But as I said, I still get tripped up by it. Mm. And I um, I think with that comes a lot of, feelings of frustration with yourself because you think just as I'm like kicking along and kicking some goals, I get dragged right back again. And I go back kicking and screaming yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. because I'm not happy about it, but I'm, I'm learning to understand myself a lot better, I think through grief. And it's, and it's interesting. I think something that's perhaps not considered with that grief framework is that there are other emotions that come with it that, you know, that are not in that list of five emotions of denial, anger, bargaining, acceptance, depression. I think there's things like jealousy you know and envy of others you know for you it would be for people that are in perfect health for me it might be looking at other families um a lot of anxiety fear frustration yeah yeah fear is a big one frustration and I think those kind of things are not explored in saying that it's funny because I think um Elizabeth Kubler-Ross that came up with that framework I do feel bad for her because I think, you know, there's a lot of slamming of what she came up with. But at the same time, too, there's nothing else out there and it gives mm. me some kind of framework to work with. But I think it's just having that deeper understanding that it's it's not linear, that there are other emotions that will that will come with it. And, um, you know, with that understanding, you can hopefully learn to work with it, with it a little bit better. And I think that in time, that's what I've found rather than always kicking and screaming against my grief, I'm learning to work better with it. Mm. Doesn't mean yeah. it hurts any less, but, no. you know, I might know some strategies to help me. A well, I think better. part of it has to be about embracing and surrendering to that grief. So 
you just have those days where you go into that deep dark hole and the world sucks. You do. And it's, and it's hard. And I think, as I said, I thought I was coming along quite well, but Craig's four year anniversary was this year and um, we're in lockdown and I could feel myself getting sucked under. And I, I, it was the worst I've felt, I think, in all the journey since those early days of his death. And it was funny because I think I could feel myself sort of, you know, it happened over a weekend on a Friday. I could feel myself, you know, starting to go down the hole a little bit. The Saturday, deeply emotional by the Sunday, completely beside myself, not being able to get out of bed. And I think that's when I had to kind of go, I need to surrender to this and I need to let all the emotions out and, you know, I sometimes say surrender, but then surrender even a little bit more and then, you know, start to pull in what you can to try and help yourself from there. And it, it sucks. It's a really hard space to be in when you, when you, you can't function, when you are feeling so deeply sad or angry or frustrated, whatever it might be, or you just simply can't get out of bed and don't have the, the energy. And I know, you know, I talk to a bit of like going back to basics um, when I'm in those stages and that's really, you know, I think we talk a lot to self-care. <laughs> that was going to be my next question. Yeah, we- <laughs> self-care. And I think for me that gets really frustrating because for me self-care is working my ass off, going to the physio, going to the EP, going for a walk, doing um, exercises to maintain my ability. My self-care doesn't look like a bath and a candle. No, and no. I and when you are, I always feel like when you are that fragile and that vulnerable that life really sucks and you're questioning who you are and what the hell is going on. Um I know on that Sunday when I was saying I I was in the deep throes of grief. Um I can I if someone told me to go meditate, I'd tell them to go fuck themselves. Like I because I don't have the capacity to do that to meditate, yeah. to walk 10 kilometers to you know, go for a massage. At this stage, I'm struggling to get out of bed. And, it, and at that point, all I need is to make sure that I'm eating and keeping hydrated, that I'm resting mm. and giving my body a break, um, that I guess I'm keeping warm. And I think the big one is then connection. And that can be really difficult. And that's, I think, more so about knowing who are the people that you're willing to invite into your life to either care for you at that stage who are going to make you feel safe and secure mm. and stable and whether that's family whether that's um, professional support of a psychologist or a counsellor I think it's really key in knowing who those people are that you trust and it's always an interesting one because I know when I'm in those really bad states I find it really hard to well, yeah. reach out. I know what I was just thinking of and I think we missed one of those emotions and, and maybe more for diagnosis more than um, death, but correct me if I'm wrong, is part of what I feel when I'm in that grief is shame. Yeah. And it's that shame around why can't I? That's not fair. I should be able to do this. Why can't I? And I, that's when I find it really hard to connect with people because I don't want someone to sit there and tell me it's going to be okay mm. because it's not. It's <laughs> like not. It's, it's not. And I, and I have that real shame around being in grief and not being able to get over it. And then about my ability. So, and I think, as I said, I think the ability side is, you know, different um, for dealing with the death. But I I still, you know, if you said to me, 
how do I feel following going through those experiences? Even when I'm in it, I feel, yeah, frustrated, embarrassed. Mm. I feel really exposed that, you know, I'm supposed to be this adult who can run a household with my daughter there and, you know, that I should be able to work and I just lose all capacity for everything and I find that embarrassing and maybe there's that shaming going Joe, it's been four years. You, mm. you should be you should be better than this. And then yeah, it's you've had, had your year. I've had my year. I'm yeah. done. I'm supposed yeah. to be better. I'm supposed to be fixed. And then I think it's hard to invite people in to to witness that when you feel com- completely exposed. Mm. Um, I think that after that aftermath, after the grief, can be. Um, yeah, like you said, super exposing. I want to talk to you before we move on to kind of the aftermath of grief. Mm. You've got a young daughter. Yeah. She's eight. She's eight years old. She's yes. Eight. How do you go about, like, given she's lost her dad, you've lost your husband, how do you grieve while parenting? God, it's bloody tough. It is really tough. And I look, I can probably reflect on those first couple of years um, with my daughter Heidi after Craig had died. It really felt like my grief took precedent over hers. She was only four when he passed away. And um, I know I was on such a roller coaster and messy and all over the place that it, it felt like, you know, attend to, and look, my psychologist that I work closely with would have said, attend to yourself first because as long as you're okay, then you can help, you know, with the mm. parenting and keeping things stable, et cetera, for her. But um, it, it's difficult. I think as time has gone on, I'm noticing her grief is evolving. And what I imagine is that where mine might feel easier in time, hers might actually get a little bit harder before it mm. gets better as she starts to reach milestones in her life that her dad is not there for, whether that's first day of high school, getting married, you know, having some kind of achievement or accolade. And, you know, I'm having a difficult time with her at the moment where she wants her dad. She's still cognitively, I think, trying to understand the permanency of death. And mm. I think she's noticing that she's different from other children. And I think a lot of children are just desperate to fit in at times. And so there's a lot of conversations that go on, but it's it's really hard when you're feeling emotionally fragile and if they're also grieving. I, I feel relatively lucky in that Heidi and I seem to have this weird sort of thing where it's like when I'm really struggling, she seems to be okay. And then when mm. she's struggling, I seem to be okay. So for some reason it just works out, but I'm really conscious of keeping um a stable environment for her, but it's exhausting. And you're doing it all like when you're on your own, as I guess mm. in a widowed situation like myself, you know, we went camping, was it not last week, the week before, and I came back after three days exhausted. I mean, I'd had the best time, but every aspect of my day is then, you know, I have to attend to everything, the bath mm. times, the bedtimes, the negotiating, the screaming matches, <laughs> yeah. the everything. So it, it's it's really tricky and hard and it's it's hard when you've got your own emotions going on as well so and I but I think we're just learning together and I've tried not to read too much about child's grief or anything I've I've certainly used a couple of support services um there's an incredible camp in Geelong called Wombat's Wish which is for bereaved children and you know leaned on those kind of places but I've tried to not get too far ahead of myself and I guess um 
I guess lean a bit more into intuition and go, I probably will know what is best for her. Maybe not the first couple of years. I think I was an over, all over the place mess, but yeah. <laughs> Heidi, let's go to Cambodia for eight weeks. This will be fun. Mum's having an eat, pray, midlife crisis. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I do. I, I think we're learning together and I think we're both just supporting each other. As I said, when I was having that really hard time, you know, in September, uh, like I was worried for Heidi. I was emotionally unstable, I would have said, mm. and crying and upset. And I, it took a lot. Like I had to really make sure that I reassured her when I got home on the Sunday after I'd broken down to my parents and my sister to say, you know, I know you must be feeling worried. It's going to be okay. I, mm. I just really miss daddy and I'm scared and I'm worried, but in time I'll be okay. So just don't you worry. So I try not try not to put that onto her but also I guess let her know that it's okay to feel that way too and I think that's part of you know even with a diagnosis I guess if you're talking to your son Claire is going there's going to be times that you're upset and sad and angry and that's okay it's all part of it and he might go through an array of emotions before you like seeing that and that that it's all actually okay to feel that way. Yeah, and I think, like you just said, part of it is making it acceptable totally. because, you know, like I'm a crier. I'll cry listening to a happy song. I'll cry watching a happy thing on TV. I'll cry watching something sad. I'll cry listening to your story. I'm trying really hard not to. <laughs> but, like, I'm a crier, so he sees it all the time. But I do think there's, there's it's something really hard about just trying to get through and, like, that wading through the mud of um, of having to parent whilst dealing with your own shit. Um, it's, yeah. It's exhausting. It's, um, oh, and I think it's hard because you just don't always know what the right thing is to be doing. And mm. you've got the, you've got someone who needs you mm. <laughs> while you've got your own shit going on. And yeah. I think that can be, you know, if you're just having a day that you're tired or you're just, feeling a bit pissed off or whatever that you're still having to parent and it's and I've always found it interesting because even after Craig had died a lot of people would say to me um but you're lucky you've got Heidi she'll keep you going and look there's been a certain aspect that I do feel like I've been forced to get up every day whether Mm. I wanted to or not I, I can't even tell you times where I've just laid in bed I've never I've not really ever had the ability to be able to do that because she's she's always needed me especially in those first couple of years but at the same token too sometimes I feel I always feel a bit rotten saying this but I'd be interested to know what my grief would be experience would be like without her too and having that freedom and flexibility and um, look sure I'd probably would have run off overseas and end up an alcoholic or something like that but um I can see the argument on both sides of you know Mm. there's something wonderful to have you know to have children in your life that give you a sense of purpose to live um but I also go it's really tough and it'd be you know I feel like I lack a bit of freedom in that sense as well um and and also too I think I used to get quite annoyed with comments about you know will she she needs a good life and you've got so much to live for just through her. And I'd always be a bit defensive and go, but what about me? Don't mm. I deserve a good life? And don't yeah. I, like, and I want to do this just as much for Heidi, but I actually really want to work on my grief and my emotions and, you know, understand this experience. But I want I'd actually, 
want to do that for me because I think if, you know, I can work through it in the best way that I can, then I'm hoping that I can impart that knowledge and learning onto to Heidi as well and I guess show her that, you know, perhaps life's not always living through your children, which might be controversial to say. <laughs> no, I think, it's, I think it's amazing and refreshing to hear because we have one child, only going to have one child, and part of that is because we're super selfish with our time and our and, and we've always said that is we want to be able to go travelling. We want to be able to spend yeah. time together. Um, and I think it makes a, we don't have the capacity for anyone else. So, yeah. And I think it's kind of knowing your limits. Like I, I think too interesting on that conversation is steering away from grief, but we had considered having another child. And the only reason we were considering it was because we thought, you should. Heidi should have a brother or mm. sister. And the couple of days after Craig had died, a psychologist who was a friend came down to see me and it's like it had just hit me all of a sudden that I was going, oh, God, I will never, quite possibly, never have another baby again. And it made me really emotional because it was a conversation Craig and I were having more recently. And he said, oh, were you planning to? And I said, yeah, we were, but we wanted to do it for, like Craig and I didn't really need another child, but we thought yeah. it was the right thing to do by Heidi. And he said to me, I don't think that's a good enough reason to have another child. And that's what we've always said. Yeah, yeah. and, I, and I, I think that's really helped me kind of go, yes, I've got what I've got. I feel really incredibly lucky to have Heidi and um, I'm probably a bit selfish too because I like to have a good life and look, I've got a dark sense of humour, but I even go without Craig, like with Craig not going on holidays, I only now need the one bedroom. So Hyde and I can just sleep in bed together. So it's a much more cost-effective holiday. <laughs> you say that? Well, I mean, I think you've got to. And I think part of that around grief is being able to make those dark jokes oh, like totally I love a dark how do you joke get by? I mean I have heard your um joke that you did tell <laughs> well I'll just for the listeners so they can hear I am you know obviously and you would deal with the same you know when you bring up your situation whether that's a diagnosis someone's not expecting or the fact that you've got a dead husband it makes people <laughs> I also feel just love you, like I've got a dead husband like so yes. very uncomfortable and sometimes you know, there's that real navigation in that first year or two, I think, after any of those events is how do you broach this with people? And I'd find myself in all sorts of situations. And sometimes I'd be embarrassed and not wanting to bring it up. And other times I'd think I can have a bit of a game with this. And <laughs> this poor woman one day, um, you know, I don't, I'm not sure how it came like up in conversation, but obviously I've had to drop in to it that my husband had, had died and she just looked at me and you know that oh she's like oh god I don't even know what to say I'm so sorry and I just looked at her and said oh don't worry I didn't like him much anyway <laughs> and her jaw always hit the floor I'd realized I'd perhaps taken a little bit too far I was like I'm joking I'm joking but I'm sure forever she will think you are one sick and twisted person <laughs> I think you've got to and it's I mean if you can't have a joke about the thing that shit I don't want other people to joke about it. No, they're not allowed to. I don't want other people to joke about the fact that I can't walk. That's not appropriate. (laughs) But if I can't make a joke about it, what good is it? I know. And it's sometimes just the situations you find yourself in. I still like laugh and go, how was I, how did I become like the marriage celebrant with a dead husband? Like I, when I sort of 
realized that I was like, and I still was quite heavily in the industry. Like I still do weddings, but was doing them a lot. And I was like, is this going to be bad for business? Is this like, am I going to be a jinx on people's weddings? Like they're going to be like, well, yours didn't go that well. What are, well, what are you the, the marriage didn't no, go it wasn't, well. it wasn't the marriage. But, you know, I still, I still laugh about it. I remember writing a blog about it because it literally was, I think I'd done 450 weddings and then it was a, fu- a funeral. So I call it my 450 weddings and a funeral <laughs> <laughs> But, oh, yeah, you, you have to laugh and I think you've got to find, like, when you're in that space to laugh and joke and, you know, just feel happy or whatever it is, I think you've just got to run with it. Well, and I think it's part of the grief, isn't it, of, like, another emotion around embracing and um, accepting the bad thing that's happening is the the happiness around it. Totally, and I think... Maybe that's a misconception too. I think, um, you know, especially when you're dealing maybe with the tragic death, I guess, of a husband or a child, I think there was an expectation and I guess the misconception is that all widows should be wearing black and hiding away for a year and I just refuse to hide away (laughs) or wear black. And um, I think people found it weird to see me have moments of joy in Mm. and I found it hard even in the first few months where you start to go oh god I've actually just laughed and smiled but I still clearly remember like some of those first moments where I felt pure and utter joy in that first year after Craig had died and I remember just going god that feels good and when Mm. I feel that way I just have to run with it like and just embrace it for what it is and it's okay to be feeling grief and you know anger and things but also to be experiencing joy at the same time like I don't think you have to be pigeonholed into well now you must be depressed forever because you've got MS so I think it's yes and I I still you know I, I think I'd gone for a night out with some girlfriends for dinner and I ran into someone who just, you know, like said to me, how are you? And I said, I'm good. Like I was out with my girlfriends. I was having a good time. And then they were like, but really, how are you? I was like, I'm good. I'm out with my girlfriends. (laughs) I'm having a good time. And and that's hard because you go, are you trying to drag me back to a place? Because that's your expectation that I'm at home sobbing all the time. And look, certainly there's an element of, of that of course there is but you know I think you can experience a lot of different emotions at any one time and I can still be having the shittest day on earth and still find something to laugh about or to make me smile or you know whatever it is I mean I think that's just life isn't it mm. yeah mm. yeah absolutely I want to talk to you about the emotional hangover after yeah. kind of that real deep dark grief Can you talk to us about the aftermath and the emotions that follow kind of that real deep, you know, you said six weeks ago, what, tell me about after that. Yes. So I I think after that, look, it certainly um, took me, I I think there was where I'd say I'm in the deep dark hole. I think I was there for probably three to four days of really intense. Oh my God, I have lost the plot. Um, And then I would say you start to scramble add the hole a bit bit through that sort of yeah trying to get yourself out of the hole and for me that comes with a lot of fatigue exhaustion um I think sadness like just feeling completely 
depleted. I think going back to those emotions of feeling frustrated that I haven't Mm. been able to handle my grief better. And I really have to like rein it right in as in, um, I mean, I think we were, we were still in lockdown. So that was, and I think, no, actually, I think we'd come out of lockdown for a week or two or whatever it was. Um, but just kind of being really gentle on myself as in, I don't want to be hanging out the park with anyone, just, just kind of doing the day-to-day sort of basic tasks that I can, but with no, not too much pressure or expectation on myself either. And I think we were having a conversation earlier about, you know, I'm starting to feel like a little bit of creative thinking is coming back. Whereas when I'm in those hangover stages, it's like, I've got nothing. I can just do, I can do the bare Mm. minimum to get by and to function. And I just have to go really gently. And that might be pulling back on social engagements or, um, you know, not, over committing yourself to work or trying to come up with some brand new project. Um, but yeah, for me, it's, it's a lot of fatigue. And I think that's because your body and brain has just taken an absolute whacking. And I think that takes time to Mm. recover from. And I think it's, it's important to take that time because I think that gives you a little bit of time to process what happened there. And it's funny because I, I always like to, you know, once I guess I've come out of the hole is to actually sort of sit and think about and go, what was that all about? Like what, what, what pulled me into that? What were the emotions I was experiencing? Was it, um, you know, a couple of years ago, I remember sort of hitting that hole once again, and it was all to do with, I didn't feel like I'd had the opportunity to say goodbye to Craig in the way I would have liked too and with that came a whole lot of anger and Mm. um but and I couldn't see that at the time but a week or two on I was able to go oh that was anger and that's what I was annoyed about and that's perfectly okay I think in the time when you when your brain I think when you're in that deep dark hole your brain's actually not working properly Mm. so you can't really reflect and so I think as much as it's hard that recovery and I would say it's taken me a good four to five weeks to to recover or bounce back a little bit more. I think you come out of it all a bit battered and bruised. Um, it gives me a little bit more insight into who I am. And I think at the time, as painful and shitty as it is, you often learn something and you you, you grow from it as well. Yeah. Um, that's funny because I was just going to ask you, next question is about how grief changes us. So, you know, after a significant diagnosis or a, or a death or something significant changing mm-hmm. in your life, I feel like we've got to change. Um, and so often I know that we just want to be the person that we were, give, you know, particularly with the diagnosis. Yes. You know, you, I want my body to work the way it was. I want to be able to do the things that I was able to do. I want to be the person I was before this and it's totally fine and I don't need to deal with this diagnosis. But this grief, it changes you. So talk to us about why and how this change is so important. Yeah, so I think, um, look, as I, I was much the same. I, I remember pleading with my psychologist about two weeks after Craig had died and absolutely melting down and saying to her, I just don't want this to change me. And she was like, well, what are you so scared about? And I said, well, because I quite liked who I was before. I was positive and mm. upbeat and, um, and, you know, she didn't have much to sort of comment on that but as time has gone on I'm like of course I've changed of course like how can these big experiences 
not change us in some kind of way. And I think it can change you. It'll change you in some amazing ways and maybe some not so amazing ways. So I would say the biggest change for me in the positive way has been that I think I have deeper empathy for people in their situations, whether that's death, whether that's diagnosis, that I've got more of an understanding of how life works. I think I've got a better sense of humour. <laughs> As a result, I think I um, am a lot more present than I used to be. I've lost all that trying to keep up with the Joneses because I'm like, you get one life, why would you spend it, you know, trying to get the massive house and, you know, that's the only thing you're working towards. And I think I realised too that um, for me it's a life is just about feeling as good as I as I can. It doesn't have to be happy but um, just about feeling good. And I, I think I've become a more um, robust kind of person as a, of a result of that. Certainly I've changed in some bad ways too. <laughs> I think I'm a lot more fragile than I perhaps, although in saying that, I still, I don't see that necessarily as a bad thing, but I certainly feel things quite deeply and, um, yeah, and I guess maybe there's a little aspect of me that'll be a little bit untrusting of the world and knowing mm. how quickly, and you'd be the same, how quickly life can be turned upside down in just a moment and then all of a sudden you're trying to find and navigate this new world that you're in. But I think ultimately you will and you have to change because I think you have to adapt to whatever is happening in your life. And if you're not adapting, you're just resisting it. And then it just feels like you're kind of working against yourself anyway and you're going to always be having this internal battle by refusing to, I guess, accept what is actually happening yeah. around I think you. part of it too is... And I say this so often, but everyone's going through something totally. and we're all changing every day. So like, you know, obviously our change may happen quite quickly and quite yes. significantly, but like everyone's, everyone's going through something. Everyone's changing day by day. We may just not see it. I, I tend to agree. And I think it's just growth. And I think hmm. you would never, you know, if you look back, yeah, I go, I never would want to be the 20-year-old I was or the 30-year-old I was because I've learned so much and I've experienced mm. so much more. And I think now as a result of such significant changes, you, it's just about fine-tuning where you want to put your energy mm. um, and, and what your values are and what's important to you. And I think I've had to reassess that perhaps sooner than I ever would have, but I'm actually grateful for that in a way too because I think, you know, I realise now when I, you know, what I do want to put my energy into versus perhaps pulling energy away for things that are not serving me, whether that's friendships or catch-ups or something in work, that I, I'm much clearer in what I kind of want for myself mm. as well and, and what values are important to me as well. Whereas if you had said to me, you know, what are your values 10 years ago, I would have said, I don't know. Like, I just don't, I, don't, I just don't know. I think I was just flailing about in life like enjoying it don't you get didn't need to either you just did no, life. you just did life whereas I think now like I'm doing life but I think I've got a better sense of purpose in a way and I don't mean that that's anything huge like I like I've you know I hope people don't sort of think that I'm <laughs> trying to take on the world basically I feel like my purpose is just to kind of seek joy 
um, making sure that I feel secure and stable in my life. I love an adventure and that's really about it for me. <laughs> it's not, it doesn't have to be groundbreaking. And I think it, it can be difficult sometimes when you've been through something so life-changing that you feel that you have to be going out and taking over the world um, and doing something with what's happened to you. But I think for me, it's become a lot more just, yeah, just the simple things are what is most important. Yeah, for sure. Um, grief, we've talked about it at the start, super taboo. How do we make it more accepted? And the other question around this is I suppose I feel like it's often the responsibility of the person going through the grief to make the people around them comfortable, which gives me the shits actually because it then becomes about the other person. But how do we make it more acceptable and why is it our responsibility to help others? So I think the the way we can make it, I guess, you know, more acceptable and less taboo is to talk and to share. Mm. And I think that that's, um, I don't know with you, Claire, you probably have noticed this through your community and podcasts. It's like because you've opened, opened up yourself and your experience, then people will open up with you. And I've certainly found that in the grief space in that I've heard so many incredible stories and 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 really connected with people like you that I might might not ever have met otherwise and um and that's mainly come out of from sharing experiences and being open and honest to talking to a conversation that a lot of people are uncomfortable about and think that you shouldn't talk about but it's it's a great aspect of life like Mm. you know illnesses too it's it's naive of us to think that these kind of things won't happen to us at some point in time or happen to someone very, very close to you as well. So I think it's, um, yeah, definitely important to talk about it, but I think that's the way that we can best advocate for it is sharing our experiences and knowledge and things too. Um, to your other point, it is shit that often the person <laughs> going through the diagnosis or going through, you know, the death or of someone they love or whatever it might be that you're responsible for making people feel better about it. And, um, and I think that just comes from people's fear. They, don't know what to say. They don't have the capacity to um, sit with you in the shit. They're trying to make it better. So, you know, and that takes a lot of energy. I know I found, especially in those first couple of months and probably because I was so desperate not to change um, <laughs> that I would be, yeah, you know, someone would say, I'm so sorry. I'd be like, it's fine. It's fine. I'm, I'm doing well. It's totally okay. Best thing that's ever happened to me. Like just, you know, trying to make like desperate to make them feel more comfortable. I, I feel lucky in that I'm a pretty open and I guess relatively confident person. I wouldn't say I'm an in your face kind of person, but I've got the confidence, I guess, to, speak to people um and so I always I guess try and address the elephant in the room if no one else will because I'm like if this just needs to if this needs to come up in conversation to make people feel more comfortable because they're just skirting around the issue um then I'm prepared to do that but in saying that then that really worries me for people that don't have the confidence and don't feel comfortable Mm. in bringing up you know their hardships that yeah, how do they cope with those situations? I'm not sure what the right answer is, but I guess that's why I'm probably a bit hell-bent on, you know, of of talking about it because I hope in a way, whilst I love talking to people who 
agree and you know certainly sharing their experiences and hearing those I'm equally as passionate about educating people how to help someone who mm. is grieving and how to support them and knowing what they can say and what they can do and um and just getting comfortable with the uncomfortable yeah mm. and speaking of supporting people to help people going through grief I'm yeah. not sure if that question works <laughs> Um, But you created a beautiful grief journal and I would love for you to talk to us about that. Yeah, absolutely. So this was a COVID project um, last year. Um, So I, yeah, look, I found after Craig had died and I've always been a bit of a writer, like I found um, journaling and things quite therapeutic. I don't do it all the time. Like I'm probably one of those people that goes to a journal when I'm probably facing some kind of crisis. Um, But I noticed after Craig had died, a lot of people were gifting me blank notebooks and um, it was such a beautiful thought because I knew that I enjoyed writing. But um, every time I'd open them up, I'd just go, I don't even know, I don't even know where to start with with this. Grief is complex and messy and uh, I guess Last year, I kind of, I'd hit a bit of a hurdle again and I was in those deep throes of grief and I thought, wouldn't it be great to be able to create like a safe and nurturing space for people who are grieving to write out their experiences but be guided through it? And I guess the journal's a bit like a, I guess, a friend in a way that it really speaks to them and it covers off things like, you know, talking about what's happened to them, you know, experiences of anger or loneliness, um, talking to various stages of grief they've perhaps experienced to other things like I guess you know who do you connect with when you when you're feeling grief you know or sorry you're in a bad way with your grief um what are some things that you can do for yourself that make you feel good uh and I think exploring things like gratitude etc so it just really takes people through I guess those experiences of grief but it's for the writer to be able to detail their experience versus someone else telling them how to do it and I think Mm. everyone's journey of grief is so unique and so individual and I know I certainly read um quite a few books after Craig had died and I I loved hearing other people's experiences but I just found there wasn't really anything out there that helped me explore my own and I'd often find with reading those books I'd be like oh I like what they've got to say about this but I don't agree Mm. with this and not in a way that I'd write to them and tell them but you know what I mean like I think there was just nothing out there that was like Joe, you as a person how are you finding this how are you finding this journey how are you coping and I think I've always you know I did I did write a lot in notebooks after Craig died and I love occasionally reading over them to either go wow look how far I've come but also equally go oh god that emotion's still really raw for me I definitely haven't figured that part out of myself so I think they become a really nice keepsake in a way too so yeah that's where that came from so how can people find you and your journal if they were after something to support them through that so I'm on social media on Instagram at joe.bets. I'll spell bets for you because it's a bit yeah. tricky. B-E-T-Z, no S, the Z. Uh, and then they can purchase the journal and read a little bit more about me and my story and some blogs and things that I've written on joebets.com.au. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk through grief with us in a kind of hilarious way. <laughs> God, I'm so bad. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me, Claire. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Misunderstood. You can find Joe on Instagram at joe.bet.
that. And you can find her beautiful grief journal and everything else about her at her website, which you can check out the link right in the show notes. You can find me on Instagram at Claire.Riley. The best thing you can do to support this podcast is click follow on Spotify, subscribe on your other podcast listening platforms and leave leave a review because that helps others to find the episodes. I'm always looking for new guests for the MS Understood podcast. If this is you or something you know, please send me a message via my Instagram account. And in an effort to make sure we have equal representation, I'd love to hear from any members of the LGBTQI plus community, a black and BIPOC community, or any men willing to share their stories of living with multiple sclerosis. As you know, I'm also looking for anyone who can help those living with MS or family members who are willing to share their stories of supporting people living with MS. So send them my way also. Thanks again for listening and please share this episode with someone you think it might help.